Track 1 Introduction Welcome to the Hidden Voices audiobook. The M8 from Moy to Mitchellstown Motorway winds its way through the storied lands of North Cork, crossing an undulating landscape between the River Blackwater and the Galtee Mountains. The road was constructed to bypass the towns of Formoy and Mitchellstown as part of the upgraded Cork to Dublin National Road Network. In advance of the construction of the road, archaeologists from Octra Archaeological Projects unearthed a succession of exciting discoveries along its route as they excavated 22 archaeological sites. The remarkable insights their findings provide to life in North Cork across the millennia is the subject of this Abarta audiobook that was produced on behalf of Transport Infrastructure Ireland. The M8 is just the latest in a series of routeways to negotiate the shadow of Cahadrini Hill, one of the great physical and historical landmarks of North Cork. Just as it today watches over the motorway, in ages past, it kept vigilant eye on the comings and goings of all who crossed the plains and river valleys straddling either side of the Kilworth Mountains. It bore witness to each of those who feature in our story, all the way back to the hunter-gatherers who established a seasonal camp at its base 10,000 years ago. Theirs are the first hidden voices whose echoes reverberate through this audiobook, but they are far from the last. It takes us from the thud of axes and crash of trees that sounded through the landscape of Ireland's first farmers to the anguish, pain and despair that accompanied the deaths of those taken far too young during the Bronze Age. We encounter those who constructed North Cork's most monumental boundaries some 2,000 years ago and meet master craftsmen who may have counted saints among their early medieval clients. We will step inside the modest homes of those whose lives were shaped by a new power, the Anglo-Normans, and take our leave with a visit to the equally modest dwellings of the region's 19th century inhabitants. Each track of our guide examines an aspect of life in a specific period of history. But it begins with the story of the hunter-gatherers and farmers, who were the first to make North Cork their home. Track 2 Cork's First Farmers Revealed Around 10,000 years ago, bands of hunter-gatherers made their way through the dense primeval forests and found their home in the resource-rich landscape of North Cork. This period of Irish history is known as the Mesolithic, meaning the Middle Stone Age, named for the stone tools that are the main evidence left behind by these early inhabitants. The environment these families encountered was very different from what we see today. The glaciers of the last ice age had given way to a dense carpet of forest, with mile upon mile of pine, oak, elm, alder and hazel trees in every direction. 
Those who chose to make this landscape their home led a semi-nomadic life, moving back and forth along river valleys and through woodland trails to exploit different seasonal opportunities. Flint tools uncovered near the banks of the Glencora Stream and Funchen River and at the base of the Cahadrini Hill mark out some of their favoured seasonal sites. In this tree-covered terrain, the beginnings of landscape management began to emerge. At Cotor, overlooking the Funchen, archaeologists discovered a tool that had been specifically fashioned to exploit and manipulate the forest that surrounded them. Made from a sedimentary rock called mudstone, this polished stone axe head is thought to be one of the earliest examples of a polished stone axe ever found in Ireland. The axe was lost along a forest trail, only to be rediscovered by archaeologists over 10,000 years later. Technological knowledge and a deep understanding of the natural world were the key to survival in the Mesolithic. This knowledge passed through the generations, causing many places, such as the sites at Cahadrini and Gotor, to remain in intermittent use. As the centuries passed, Irish hunter-gatherers developed new stone tools unique to the island, such as the Moynach Point and Kerry Point, which were used to spear and bone fish at Gotor around 8,000 years ago. The camp that existed on this terrace overlooking the river Funchen may well have been popular in the autumn, when the salmon moved upriver to spawn. A series of pits excavated here likely formed part of a temporary structure, used for a few weeks or perhaps months each year. The discovery of charred plant remains at Gator also gave us a rare glimpse at the hunter-gatherer diet, indicating that North Cork's first inhabitants added wild legumes, tubers, berries and hazelnuts to whatever meat and fish they managed to hunt. Daily life and the landscape of Ireland was changed utterly with the arrival of agriculture in the region some 6,000 years ago. Farming became the driving force of a new era, which we now know as the Neolithic, or New Stone Age. The thud of stone axes chopping into wood sounded across the landscape, as these first farmers cleared the ancient forest to raise livestock and cultivate crops such as emmer wheat and barley. Harnessing the environment in a way previously unimaginable, these Neolithic people began to establish their first permanent homes. North Cork bore witness to this early development. Six Neolithic houses were discovered on the M8 Formoy Mitchellstown motorway. Five of them belonged to the earliest house form found on the island. Built over 5,600 years ago, these modest homes were constructed using split oak planks, or post and wattle. Rectangular in plan, they measured between 6 to 8 metres long and 4 to 6 metres wide. They would have likely sheltered a single family group. These farmsteads formed part of a local community network. Analysis of stone tools excavated at the house sites of Gator and over 10 kilometres away at Cahadrini 
indicated that a number were made from a single imported nodule of blue beech flint, showing that the occupants of both houses had known each other all those millennia ago. Settlement evidence for the Middle and Later Neolithic was less abundant, but people continued to make the area their home. The Middle Neolithic farmers of Gator had dispensed with the rectangular house style by the time they came to construct their house. Though similar in size, they chose a subcircular shaped dwelling to live in, sometime between 5,600 and 5,100 years ago. The Neolithic period also saw the emergence of the first pottery in Ireland. The earliest of all were carinated bowls, which were expertly hand-fashioned from local clays and used for domestic functions around the house. Fragments from at least 214 separate vessels were found at five sites, including the homesteads of Gator, Ballinglana North and Cahadrini. Just as house styles changed through time, so did taste in pottery. By the Middle Neolithic, globular bowls had become the fashion, such as those discovered at Ballinacarriga. In them are preserved the artistic expressions of the people who made them, decorating the pots with tools such as cord, cut bird bone, and even their own fingernails. Later, a third type of pottery emerged in the later Neolithic, known as grooved ware. Although widely used, it is best known for its association with the ceremonial sites which Neolithic peoples began to construct in the landscape. The most famous examples are the passage tombs of the Boyne Valley. Fragments representing at least 63 grooved ware pots were uncovered at Ballinacarriga one of the largest assemblages known in Ireland. The three timber circles they were deposited beside were among the most sacred monuments built by the late Neolithic people of North Cork. Constructed over 4,500 years ago, they were the centrepiece of an important ritual and ceremonial site at Ballinacarriga. Divided into internal and external areas, these circles were expressions of the complex societal structure that had developed following the advent of agriculture. It was on this elevated location, overlooking the confluence of two water bodies, that the local community gathered for their major ceremonial events. Perhaps it was here that they asked favour from their deities, or performed the rituals that would help ensure a bountiful harvest. Before long, yet another breakthrough was on the horizon that would change lives and landscape once again. The coming of the Age of Metal. Track 3 Continuity and change at the dawn of the Age of Metal Approximately 4,500 years ago, one of the greatest technological innovations in human history arrived in Ireland. Highly skilled specialists made landfall on the island, bringing with them the secrets of metal production. 
Their ability to turn metal ore into copper objects was a process that must have appeared magical to those who first witnessed it. These earliest copper and gold workers gave their name to a 250-year period known as the Chalcolithic, or Copper Age. As with the arrival of farming, the new technologies brought social change. A new form of pottery known as beaker arrived, and new megalithic monuments known as wedge tombs were constructed. One of the most impressive in Ireland is at Labacalli near Fomoy. But just as much changed, many things also remained familiar. Metal was rare, so stone tools continued to play an important role. So too did farming, which formed the bedrock of all later prehistoric activity in North Cork. Evidence of Chalcolithic people was discovered in a number of places on the scheme, but it was at Ballinacarragher that it was most dramatically and most poignantly revealed. A number of pits excavated there were found to contain fragments of beaker pottery and Chalcolithic stone tools, but one also held cremated human remains. Sadly, analysis revealed that the bones were of two children. One had died when only a few months old. The other died at between four and 12 years of age. Their discovery is a reminder of just how frequently life could be cut cruelly short in prehistoric Ireland. As time passed, and early metallurgists continued to experiment, they eventually discovered that mixing copper and tin produced a superior metal, which we know as bronze. Its introduction heralded the Bronze Age in Ireland, which would stretch from 4,200 to 2,700 years ago. As with previous epochal changes, the Bronze Age brought with it new forms of pottery and burial practices. The growing population was becoming more stratified and a warrior elite developed. This period is also known for the lavish gold ornamentation that was being created, much of it designed to be worn around the wrist and neck. This type of jewellery may well have adorned the leaders who directed the construction of the massive Cahadrini hill fort located immediately to the west of the motorway. Most probably built towards the end of the Bronze Age, elements of this oval-shaped colossus can still be seen enclosing Cahadrini Hill, encircling an enormous area that measured more than 16 hectares in size. In its heyday, it would have dominated the landscape and the lives of the people who lived in its shadow for miles around. It likely served as not only a high-status residential and defensive structure, but also a place of tribal assembly. The Bronze Age farmers who made their settlements below the hill fort, those whose lifestyles were glimpsed through the motorway excavations, lived a more modest existence. Evidence for Bronze Age buildings were uncovered at both Ballinamona and Gartnahoun. These circular structures once had walls made from timber planks or wattle and daub and roofs of thatch or sod. They probably had internal divisions, an effort to create separate rooms and a sense of privacy for those who called them home. At Ballinamona, 
there may once have been as many as three roundhouses, if not more. One of them was 9.4 meters in diameter, with the remains of the heart that once provided a means of heat and cooking still in evidence. Pits within the building revealed an array of saddle querns, rubbing stones, and a pestle and mortar. All were used in grain processing, and it may be that this building was once used as a granary, or that the crops were stored in a loft. A prehistoric fire gutted the house, charring and preserving a large amount of its last store of grain. Remarkably, it also fossilised the individual preference of a prehistoric farmer. The pattern of grain exposed a preference for keeping emmer wheat in the southeast of the house and the main crop of barley in the central and southern areas. But while environmental evidence such as this provides us with a glimpse into the lives of the people of Bronze Age North Cork, there is another piece of the archaeological puzzle that reveals even more. The remains of the people themselves. Track 4. Venerating the Ancestors. Death in the Bronze Age. A little over 4,000 years ago, a young woman's cries of pain pierced the air over the waters of the River Funchion. As her family rushed to her aid, their faces quickly grew ashen with concern. Catastrophe now beckoned where only moments before a time of joy and celebration seemed on the horizon. Both she and her community had known her circumstances brought great and sometimes mortal risk, but they had so longed for the joy of a new family member. Now those hopes appeared dashed, as all of them were desperately aware this was far, far too soon. Ultimately, their desperate efforts to save the woman's life failed. Before long, both she and the unborn mid-term child she carried slipped into the shadows of eternity. All that now remained for the grief-stricken family was to ensure that they sent mother and baby safely on their final journey. In 2007, Archaeologists working at Ballinacarriga began excavation on the first of two ring ditches uncovered at that site. Ring ditches are a relatively common burial monument in Ireland, and they were typically used from the Bronze Age into the Iron Age. This example was defined by a penangular-shaped ditch that its prehistoric builders had dug 80 centimetres deep and nearly two metres wide. A causewayed entrance across the ditch led to an internal area that measured six metres in diameter. At the centre of the enclosed area, the archaeologists discovered a pit. Excavation revealed an encrusted urn and decorated tripartite vase, pots that are hallmarks of early Bronze Age funerary practice. Scientific analysis of the urn's interior revealed the sacred burden it carried. Analyses of the fragments of cremated bone identified the remains of two individuals, an adult female and her unborn baby. 
This mournful discovery at Ballinacarriga reaches out to us from across the millennia to lay bare the human heartbreak of loss in Bronze Age Ireland. It is all the more remarkable for the fact that this tragic North Cork woman and her baby represent one of only two recorded in neutral burials in all of Western European prehistory. The young woman and her unborn child would have known Ballinacarriga Cemetery in life as well as in death. This was the same location where hundreds of years earlier her ancestors had constructed ceremonial timber circles and where people had first started to bury their dead during the Chacolithic period at the very dawn of the Bronze Age. Sharing the mother and baby's ring ditch was another pit where the remains of a cremated infant and juvenile rested. To the north was a collection of simple burial chambers known as cysts. These earth-cut and stone-lined chambers bore the cremated bones of a further seven early Bronze Age adults and juveniles. All the identifiable remains at Ballinacarriga were of women and children. It may be that this was a cemetery used exclusively for their interment. The burial ground also contained a number of seemingly empty cysts, referred to as blind burials. Though these may have been symbolic, it is equally possible that they were the final resting places of stillborn and fetal babies, whose bones did not survive cremation. The area around the River Function was home to an important funerary landscape during the Bronze Age. Ballinacarriga was just one of a number of sites along the route to produce burials from the period. Some, such as Ballinamona, revealed still more poignant evidence for the death and cremation of children. Others, like that at Cahadrini, exposed traces of a possible funeral pyre, where a series of burnt wooden posts were discovered with charcoal and tiny fragments of human bone. Many of the cremations found on the scheme were what archaeologists refer to as token burials. Rather than burying all of a person's remains, prehistoric communities often chose to enter only a fraction. They evidently kept some of the cremated bone for other purposes or to be deposited in other locations. Or perhaps the ashes were scattered by family members, as is the custom to this day. At Gurtnahon, a portion of human bone was found in the foundation trench of a roundhouse. Deliberately placed near the entrance, the remains may have been those of an ancestor, perhaps intended to bring good fortune or protection for the house. Alternatively, they may have belonged to the person who called the building home, buried during a ritual demolition of the house following their death. The contexts and settings of the excavated burials on the M8 were varied, and each had its own story to impart. But taken together, they leave little doubt that for the Bronze Age peoples of North Cork, the preparation, treatment and veneration of their loved ones in death held profoundly deep meaning for those still experiencing life. Track 5, In Hot Water, Fulacti Fear. 
When asked what site they have most often excavated in the Irish countryside, nearly all archaeologists give a single answer. Fulachtithia. These enigmatic and unusually named features have the distinction of being the most numerous prehistoric monuments in Ireland. Most Fulachtithia share a number of characteristics. They are usually found in low-lying areas with a high natural water table and are normally distinguished by a mound of burnt stone and one or more earth-cut troughs, which are sometimes wood-lined. First constructed in the Neolithic, they exploded in popularity during the Bronze Age and continued in sporadic use long afterwards. Eight examples were excavated as part of the archaeological works on the M8. Though the majority were being used in the Bronze Age, the earliest at Kildrum dated to the Chalcolithic period, while one at Ballinglana North originated in the Iron Age. Even though tens of thousands of Philoctifia dot the Irish landscape, their precise function remains the subject of debate. This is despite the fact that the practicalities of how they operated are obvious. The troughs were designed to hold water, which was heated using hot rocks. But it is what our prehistoric ancestors chose to do with that hot water that remains one of the great discussions in Irish archaeology. The name Philoctifia itself points to one theory as to their function and associates them with those legendary warriors of early Irish mythology, the Fianna. The 17th century Irish text, Forisfasa Aeran, recounts the tale. From Bealtaine until Saun, the Fian were obliged to depend solely on the products of their hunting and of the chase as maintenance and wages from the kings of Ireland. Thus, they were to have the flesh for food and the skins of wild animals as pay. But they only took one meal in the day and night, and that was in the afternoon. And it was their custom to send their attendants about noon with whatever they had killed in the morning's hunt to an appointed hill, having wood and moorland in the neighbourhood, and to kindle raging fires thereon, and put into them a large number of emery stones, and to dig two pits in the yellow clay of the moorland, and put some of the meat on spits to roast before the fire, and to bind another portion of it with sugons in dry bundles, and set it to boil in the larger of two pits, and keep plying them with the stones that were in the fire making them seethe often until they were cooked. And these fires were so large that their sites are today in Ireland burnt to blackness, and these are now called Fulachtfian by the peasantry. As the name and story suggests, cooking is the use most often attributed to Fulachtfian. But it is not the only hypothesis. Among the many others are that they may have been used for leather-making, textile dyeing, or brewing, or could even have functioned as baths and saunas. Although each of the Fulachtifia excavated between Formoy and Mitchellstown had slightly different characteristics, all were either located near rivers or on low-lying ground. Four were uncovered in the townland of Ballinglana North alone, sited near the Glencora stream. 
This was a stretch of ground that remained popular with the Fuller Tea builders across many centuries. The most recent example, positioned just 50 metres from the riverbank, was heating water a little over 2,500 years ago, during the Iron Age. Beneath a mound of burnt stone, archaeologists revealed a large rectangular trough that had once been stone and wood-lined. A water management system connected the trough to a nearby well, presumably to assist with water supply. Not far away from this was the earliest of the Ballanglana North Fullerty, which was a full 1,500 years older. It had enjoyed its heyday during the early Bronze Age, more than 4,100 years ago. Placed on a steep slope overlooking the Glencora, it seems that the three troughs uncovered there may have had to be manually filled. One of the largest mounds of burnt stone was discovered at Ballinamona, close to the Gradog River. The heat-shattered stones hid three troughs, which radiocarbon dating revealed were in use some 3,300 years ago. Only 500 metres away from a Middle Bronze Age settlement, the Fullock was associated with a penannular-shaped ditch, which may represent the footprint of a temporary shelter, or perhaps even a sweat house. Fullactifia are unlikely to ever fully give up their true nature, but clues may lie in both their variety and longevity, both of which were in evidence among the examples found during the M8 scheme. When Ireland's first farmers initially embraced hot rock technology, they perhaps saw it purely as a means of cleansing and cooking. But hot water is useful for so many tasks that their evolution was almost inevitable. This utility may lie at the heart of their later use, that encompassed a broad assortment of roles until they became, in the words of one archaeologist, the kitchen sink of the Bronze Age. Track 6, Behind the Black Ditch, the Iron Age. It was some time over 2,000 years ago that the people of North Cork undertook a truly monumental enterprise. Certainly any traveller who chanced upon the endeavour would most surely have been awed. For mile after mile, snaking across the countryside between the Funchen and Orbeg rivers, the local community had bent their backs in labour. Whether they had done so willingly or under duress is unknown. Either way, their efforts eventually produced an immense territorial boundary, the Clydov, or Black Ditch. This prehistoric embankment and ditch ran all the way from the northwest of the modern county to the coast, reaching the sea southeast of Cork Harbour. Today, the best-preserved portion stretches for 14 kilometres from the Ballyhara Hills to the Nagel Mountains. An excavated section near Ballyhooley uncovered a bank 1.5 metres in height, possibly originally topped by a palisade on its eastern side, with a shallow ditch and trackway still further to the east. It was evidently constructed to face a threat, one which came 
from the east. The Clyde Dove was not unique. Other such boundaries include the Black Pig's Dyke that crosses several counties in the North Midlands and South Ulster. Their massive scale suggests they were built by groups who exercised regional power, while their very existence betrays this as a time of major political unrest. The Clyde Dove is one of the great monuments in Munster that dates to the period we know as the Iron Age an era that began more than 2,700 years ago, when the first iron tools and weapons began to be forged in Ireland. Arriving hot on the heels of iron was exposure to what is often called the Celtic culture of mainland Europe. Indeed, the two may have come at the same time as the knowledge and skill of ironworking may have come into Ireland from overseas. Cultural disagreements between different groups were perhaps at the root of the tensions that ultimately led to the throwing up of monuments like the Clyde Dove, which was a regional defensive and symbolic boundary shielding the West from a group or threat coming from the East. These enormous monuments not only performed a defensive function, but they were a clear statement of territory on the landscape. The great ramparts visually proclaimed that this is the land of our people. Not everyone was quick to adopt the new technology, and the evidence suggests it was some 400 years after iron arrived before people in Cork started working it. Among the places they did so was at Ballinamona and Ballinacarriga, both revealed during the excavations. The early smiths at Ballinamona established their site with a keen eye towards their raw material. They worked with bog ore, a commodity in plentiful supply on the low-lying ground surrounding the Gradog River. Once collected, they had little distance to travel before they could begin smelting. The remains of a number of the slag furnaces they operated at Ballinamona were uncovered, two of them still crammed with the residue of the production process that had taken place there more than 2,000 years ago. The great hill fort of Cahadrini likely remained an important site for much of the Iron Age, and it was just as imposing as the Clyde Dove further west. Beneath its gaze, the scheme produced nine sites with Iron Age evidence, though much of it was fleeting in nature. An isolated pit here, a heart there. As is the case across much of Ireland, the picture that emerges is of a sparsely populated landscape, where the majority made their homes in dispersed rural settlements. One of them may have been revealed at Cahadrini, where a small sub-rectangular building of probable Iron Age date was uncovered. The building, measuring a little over 10 metres long and 6 metres wide, had a central hearth. Remarkably, it was constructed only metres from where their ancestors had made their home in the early Neolithic. In the fill of one of the post holes were a Neolithic axe head and rubbing stone which by the Iron Age were already ancient relics. Unfortunately, we will never know if they were placed there intentionally. 
Perhaps they were thought to have been the work of otherworldly creatures or fairies, or perhaps the finder recognized them as the work of an ancestral hand. Another building excavated at Kilshani took a very different form. Though it may have been Iron Age in date, it is equally possible that it belonged to the Bronze Age. A roundhouse some nine metres in diameter, it had both internal and external post holes, suggesting that it may have once had an overhanging roof. Nearby, a small rectangular structure may be the remains of a four-poster granary, which were popular during this period and were intended to elevate grain off the ground for safe storage away from rodents and pests. Of all the ages that had passed since the arrival of agriculture, it was evidence for the ordinary lives of Iron Age people that proved most elusive on the scheme. But as the Iron Age, and with it the story of prehistoric Ireland, drew to a close, a new age dawned that brought with it an ingredient that would further illuminate how we view the past. The written word. Track 7. The Coming of History. The 5th century AD was a momentous one in the story of Ireland. In 431, according to a French chronicle, a man called Palladius was sent as their first bishop to the Irish who believe in Christ. He was followed not long afterwards by Patrick, the future patron saint of his adopted people. The growth in popularity of Christianity was a harbinger of the early medieval period, an era when Ireland began to enter the written record. The trappings that Christianity brought helped to mark this out as a golden age of artistic endeavour, one that produced masterpieces such as the Book of Kells and the Arda Chalice. But despite all the opulent creations for which the early medieval period is recognised, it is the remnants of ordinary lives that are the most recognisable to us in the landscape. To live in rural Ireland today is to be constantly enveloped by the story of our early medieval past, it manifests itself across much of the country in the form of a single monument type, the Ringfort. The remains of the banks and ditches of these enclosed farmsteads are common across the country. Many survive today as small, circular rings of trees and brambles in otherwise neatly planted fields. Traditional folklore describes Ringforts as the home of fairies, and to tamper with them is to invite a truly dreadful curse. This belief is one of the reasons that many have survived relatively intact to this day. At one point, there may have been more than 60,000 dotted around the island, and tens of thousands are still visible to this day. Built and used throughout the early medieval period and beyond, there was a peak in their construction between around 600 and 900 AD. So common are they that it seems they were the only major settlement type from this period. But increasingly, 
Archaeological excavations, like those in advance of the M8, are revealing our hidden early medieval landscape and uncovering a rich variety of evidence of how people lived their lives. Between the 7th and 9th centuries, those looking up from their journeys on the River Function at Ballinacarriga were greeted by an impressive sight. High above them, perched on a cliff edge overlooking the waterway, was a fort. This was not like the ring forts elsewhere in the landscape. Instead, the builders at Ballinacarriga had moulded their design to the advantages and challenges of the topography, leaving the steep, water-facing western side of their settlement undefended, they had battled high bedrock to construct a D-shaped enclosure that was part earth-cut ditch and part dry stone wall. Within the 2,000 square metre interior, they then built a number of structures, including a central rectangular building and areas for ironworking. They had also dug an underground chamber known to archaeologists as a souterrain, which was perhaps used for storage and as a refuge at times of trouble. The people who lived in Balanacarriga had gone to the trouble of picking out an imposing spot for their settlement, but others were less concerned with showy displays of military might. In Gortnahaun, at the base of the Kilworth Mountains, another group of early medieval builders had established their home. Among the structures they constructed here were two roundhouses. The larger was 7.2 metres in diameter, with an internal hearth and posts that had once supported a thatched roof or loft. When the house was lived in, during the 7th and 8th centuries, rainwater dripping constantly over years from the roof had worn away the earth, forming a distinctive drip gully that was still visible when the archaeologists excavated it. Gordahaun represented a very different type of settlement to that of Balinacarriga, whether a result of location, social standing, personal choice, or the moment in which they lived, it is evident that early medieval people made their homes in a variety of settings, and not just among the ring forts that remind us of their presence today. The historical record, much of it set down in later centuries, adds further richness to the story of these sites. One remarkable survival is the medieval text known as Cricadancheli, dated to the first half of the 12th century. This work details the land, churches and chief families of the old Irish kingdom of Fermoy, or Firmai. Historians can use the text, along with other annals, poems and eulogies, as a springboard to the history of earlier centuries in North Cork. They have revealed that the cliff-edge fort at Berlinacarriga once lay within the estate of Courbedon, and can even offer a name for the family who may have once controlled it, the Ihaivinic. The roundhouses at Gortnahon lay within the estate of Cahadrania, those who dwelt there could have been accustomed to a royal presence, as nearby Cahadrini Hill, so long the heartbeat of the local landscape, emerges in the historical records as the site of the Onach, the annual assembly of the kingdom of Firmai. 
The people who lived in the Gortnahauna roundhouses were likely under the direct dominion of the Onacht Glenamonach. We even have a name for one of the kings who controlled the area, Cahal Mac Fingwina, whose footsteps may well have once graced the threshold of the Gortnahauna roundhouse. Track 8. Daily life in early medieval North Cork. The rich mosaic of early medieval life revealed during the excavations was more than just the story of impressive fortifications and royal connections. A detailed picture of the tasks that consumed the daily existence of the community also emerged from beneath the soil. It was told through the mills they worked, the crops they produced, and the animals they reared. Some of this story was chronicled through the physical remains of their labours in the landscape, and some through the discarded waste of their industrial and agricultural pursuits. Anyone growing up in early medieval North Cork would have grown quickly accustomed to the sights and sounds of ironworking. Evidence for this highly skilled occupation was found everywhere along the route of the M8. Few sites were more impressive than that at Ballinglana North, where the detritus of ancient smiths lay strewn all around. Between the 7th and 9th centuries, this patch of ground near the Glencora stream had reverberated with the endless hammer and hiss of metalworking, when it operated as a large-scale manufacturing centre. The iron waste they threw away was overloaded with what are known as smithing hearth cakes. These distinctive lumps of slag are created in bloomery furnaces. Their unusually large sizes a telltale sign to specialists that Bellinglana North was in the business of raw iron production. Many of these cakes were unearthed in a 60 metre long ditch that paralleled the Glencora. Originally created in an effort to harness the power of the river, the water that coursed through this ditch may once have driven a massive hammer designed to manipulate raw iron. If so, it will be the first such evidence from Ireland. But there is another possibility. The Ballinglana North Ditch may have once acted as the head race for an early medieval mill. In the 1950s, just such a mill was discovered at Glenwood, only 200 metres downstream. Mills like this were tied to one of the other activities that was a staple of life in the region. Cereal production. Plant remains dating to the early medieval period were discovered at five sites on the scheme. At Gotor, the cereal grains still lay within the kiln that had been built to dry them out more than 1,200 years ago. Drying grain in this way stopped it from germinating and aided long-term storage. The Gotor farmer had chosen to build a simple figure-of-eight-shaped kiln and flue. The fire set at the mouth of the flue created hot air that was drawn into the kiln, drying the contents. Unfortunately, sparks from the flames set the structure alight, burning the cereal within. 
Though a setback for the early medieval farmer, the carbonized grain was preserved, awaiting its future archaeological discovery. Analysis of grains like these tells us what crops were favored. Oats were particularly popular, as they had an ability to thrive in the temperate Irish climate. Wheat and barley were also grown in significant quantity, along with smaller amounts of rye. Together, these cereals were the key ingredients in foodstuffs like bread, porridge and pottages, and in the brewing of beer. The waste straw and chaff also provided an important raw material, used for everything from beds to baskets. These crops were also vital for livestock, supplying feed for the animals that were the cornerstone of early medieval agriculture. At the Ballinacarraga Clifftop Fort, one animal reigned supreme. Cattle were the lifeblood of the local economy, as they were all over the island. They were of such importance that a person's wealth was measured not in gold and silver, but in the size of their herd. The residents of Ballinacarraga were wealthy indeed. The excavations produced one of the largest assemblages of animal bones ever found in Munster, and over half were from cattle. Among them were oxen to help till the fields and bulls to renew the herd, but the great majority were cows, kept primarily for dairy production and as a source of meat and hides in later life. The Ballinacarraga farmers also raised sheep for their wool, milk and meat, and a small number of pigs roamed the interior of their fort. Occasionally, the residents would set out on horseback in pursuit of red deer and hare, but it was cattle around which they built their society. The rich soils that surrounded the river function were ideal for pasture, and early medieval farmers cleared acres of woodland to satisfy the needs of their growing herds. In doing so, they set in motion a transformation of the countryside that would accelerate in the centuries to come. Though the modern landscape of North Cork has been shaped in innumerable ways, few rival cattle rearing in impact and importance. It is a livelihood that even after the passage of more than a thousand years remains central to the fabric of everyday life in the region. Track 9. Forging a Christian Future Somewhere in Munster during the 1100s, an Irish monk bent low over his desk. Battling both an aching back and the failing light, he was determined to complete his task. The ink he dragged slowly across the vellum pages was recounting the life of a saint who had lived 500 years earlier. It was not until his candle had burned low that the monk finally completed the passage. Lifting his head, he read carefully over his work. It recounted the meeting of Saint Funcua, the founder of the important monastery at Brigawan, with a group of local smiths. So then there came to him seven master smiths who dwelt near him and they made for him seven iron sickles whereon he might abide to the end of seven years, 
so that he might get a place in heaven, for he had given his original place to the king of the Dacia. He blesses the smiths of that place and left them continually the gift of handiwork, provided that they should perform or begin it in that place and palm of masters to them. The smiths ask him to give their name to the place in reward of their work. That is, Brigawan. Brigawan, near Mitchellstown, translates as Smith's Hill. When St. Vincour was alive in the 7th century, metalworking was a major aspect of life in the region. But at one of the sites discovered on the scheme, evidence was found that particularly resonates with this story of the Master Smiths. It was at the unenclosed early medieval settlement of Gurtnahauen, just three kilometres from Brigawen. There, a little to the northeast of the two roundhouses, master metalworkers plied their trade. They were pouring their efforts into the production of just a single item. Bells. Bells were a common theme in early medieval North Cork. Five kilometres north of Gortnahoun is Kyla Clig, which translates as the Church of the Bell, while ten kilometres away is the ecclesiastical site of Laba Malaga, from where a 7th century bell now in the National Museum of Ireland can be traced. The discoveries at Gortnahoun enhances this picture and represents the earliest evidence for bell manufacture in Ireland. Though there were multiple metalworking areas at the site, the focus of attention was on a small D-shaped lean-to structure. Inside were four hearths, two of which were used for smelting and two for smithing. Nearby were an iron smelting furnace and charcoal production pits to provide that vital raw material for the process. More metalworking pits and hearths lay to the west of the site. But the most significant discovery was 166 fragments of what are known as brazing shrouds, all of them relating to bells. These clay brazing shrouds were created when the early medieval smiths were coating iron bells with copper alloy, a procedure which made the bells both brighter and louder. Having constructed the bell, the craftsmen covered it with thin copper alloy sheets before sealing all of it together in a shroud of clay. This was then fired at high temperatures, which fixed or brazed the copper alloy to the iron. Afterwards, the clay was removed and discarded. When the archaeologists excavated them, some still bore the impressions of fabric that had been used to wrap the metal before the clay was applied. Most of the bells being made at Gortnahoun were small, and it is possible that many were intended for use around the necks of animals. But some of the brazing shrouds were from larger handbells of the type popular with the early medieval church. These bells were often associated with clerics and saints, who used them in a multitude of roles. They struck them to curse errant kings, to collect revenue, to cure disease and protect animals and to call their flock to prayer. To hear them was to instantly recognize the power and presence of the church. Unsurprisingly, those who possessed the talents to manufacture these bells were extremely valuable to clergymen. 
the master smiths at Gotnahaun would have held this status within their community. Perhaps they were even among those who were blessed with the gift of handiwork by Saint Vincua himself. Track 10. Making a home in late medieval North Cork. The arrival of the Anglo-Normans in the 12th century forever changed the political landscape of North Cork. Overlordship was gradually wrested from the hands of the Gaelic-Irish and passed into the possession of a new elite. Many of these nobles held names that are now synonymous with Cork, such as the Barrys of Barry's Court and the Roaches, Lords of Formoy. To seal their grip on the countryside, the Normans began to control the landscape with castles. Some also established new settlements, like the one the Fitzdevides de Saint-Michel nurtured in the foothills of the Gauti Mountains, today's Mitchellstown. The new settlers also established new religious houses, such as the Cistercian Abbey at Formoy. But as with all political change, many aspects of life for ordinary folk remained the same. The locals still needed to make a living, and they still needed a roof over their heads. One such local was a specialist in a craft that needed no introduction in North Cork. At Gary Lee, in the midst of the plain between the Galti and Kilworth Mountains, archaeologists uncovered yet more evidence for blacksmithing. Operating in the late 13th and 14th century, this forge was at a smaller scale than that of its early medieval predecessors. Rather than producing raw iron, the Gary Lee Smith was in the business of forming iron into finished objects. As well as the metal waste that surrounded his smithing hearth, there was also an abundance of hammer scale, created when the smith had struck red-hot iron with his hammer. Fragments of ceramic tuyeres also survived. These ceramic tubes formed the end of a set of bellows, the means by which the medieval smith injected oxygen into his hearth to control and maintain the temperature. The most impressive late medieval remains were excavated at Gortnahaun. There, two unenclosed rectangular medieval homes were discovered, set 25 metres apart on sloping ground. Both buildings were orientated in the same direction, suggesting they were built around the same time. Their walls were formed of a clay mix known as cob, while their main timber frame would have been set on stone pads. Each house was around 10 metres long and 4.5 metres wide, with the floors cut into the slope on which they were built. Outside drainage ditches were designed to carry water away from the buildings, while inside hearths provided a source of heat for the inhabitants. It is possible that the medieval farmers who lived here shared their homes with livestock, particularly during the winter months. These arrangements were known as buyer houses. Typically, the family would occupy the upslope section of the home, with two or three cattle housed in the lower end. 
The Gurtnerhauen houses are of a style that appears to have arrived around the same time as the Anglo-Normans, and these examples were erected sometime between the 11th and 13th centuries. Whether they were occupied by new settlers or by Gaelic-Irish cottiers remains a mystery. What we do know is that a similar homestead was excavated not far away at Mondaniel, near Rathcormac, suggesting that these homes may once have been a common sight on the Anglo-Norman manors of North Cork. The centuries that followed the building of the Gortnahoun Cobb houses were punctuated by alternating periods of calm and conflict. By the 18th and 19th centuries, relative stability had returned. The latest significant site excavated on the M8 scheme dated to this period. At Ballinglana North, a small rectangular building some eight metres long and five metres wide was discovered. Within was a wealth of material that told the story of ordinary life in the 19th century. Pottery sherds from jugs, plates and cups abounded with simple earthenware found side by side with decorated slipwares and transfer printwares. Among the other finds were the clay pipes that were once an ever-present sight in the hands and mouths of men and women across the island. The building was immediately beside the late 19th century Glencora Bridge, a key crossing on the Kilworth to Glanworth Road. It may once have served as a worker's cottage during bridge construction, or perhaps was home to a local tenant family. Though they would never have known it, those that spent their lives in this modest stone house by the Glencora stream were living, literally, in the footsteps of their ancestors. Nearby were the remains of stone tools once lost or discarded by their hunter-gatherer forebears, the first to have dipped their toes in the cool waters of the Glencora. These two sites, 10,000 years apart, bookend a remarkable journey through the lives of North Cork's inhabitants, one that touched on the experiences of people from every era in the human story of Ireland. Track 11. Conclusion. Thank you for downloading our Hidden Voices audiobook. If you would like more detail and analysis of the sites featured in this audiobook, you can explore the published scheme monograph. Hidden Voices, the Archaeology of the M8 Fomoy Mitchellstown Motorway by Penny Johnson and Jacinta Kiley. You can find more information about the archaeological sites investigated along the route of the M8 and elsewhere in a series of publications by Transport Infrastructure Ireland. To find out more, go to the archaeology section on their website at tii.ie. This audiobook, funded by Transport Infrastructure Ireland, was written by Damien Shields and edited by Neil Jackman with assistance from the project archaeologist Ken Hanley. The audiobook is narrated by Jerry O'Brien and recorded at Bluebird Studios in Kildare with sound engineer Declan Lonigan and producer Roshin Burke.
We hope you've enjoyed listening to the story of the archaeology of the M8 Formoy Mitchellstown motorway. You can find more audiobooks on our website at abartaheritage.ie.